0: Good afternoon. I'm Walter Olson with the Cato Institute. Um, You have all muted your cell phones already, haven't you? Um, This is a room full of litigators, so it's very important that you do that. Um, (coughs) I wanted to welcome you to the Cato Institute for our book forum on uh, Jonathan Adler's volume Business and the Roberts Court. Um, The subject of the Supreme Court is very dear to Cato. Uh, We have uh, a very active uh, amicus program, which has had a high success rate at uh, persuading, we'd like to thank the court to both the grant certiorari and uh, to side with libertarian positions uh, on the issues it considers. Uh, we also published the Cato Supreme Court Review, a remarkable uh, annual volume, which uh, only a few months after the end of the court's term, uh, presents a an assortment of uh, intelligently written, Uh, timely uh, articles on what just happened in that term and we like to think that it is among the most uh, accessible even to non lawyers sometimes uh, ways of learning about the Supreme Court uh, and what it's up to but I will recommend this volume as uh, one of the most valuable resources I have seen in many many years from other than Cato uh, in understanding how the court works because uh, although we lured you all in here this afternoon by saying that there would be a debate about uh, whether the Roberts Court is too pro-business, whatever that means, uh, the fact is that you can read this book with a great deal of profit and pleasure, whether or not you care uh, about the answer to that or whether or not you've already answered that in your head. It uh, provides a wonderful series of summaries of what the court has done in various areas of the law hard to find elsewhere. Um, My own perhaps personal favorite, aside from uh, Jonathan's chapters, is uh, Brian Fitzpatrick on civil procedure. Uh, I've been telling people for a long time that uh, that the uh, most important Supreme Court cases they've never heard of are a pair called Twombly and Iqbal. Uh, having to do with uh, the procedure for being able to get into federal court in the first place. Um, And it is almost impossible to explain those for a general audience. Uh, In this book, you will find that it's actually done, uh, and very well, too. And so it is for environmental law, for antitrust, for many other topics. And uh, to discuss this, we have. Jonathan Adler, editor and compiler of the volume. He is the Johann Verhey Memorial Professor at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Uh, He probably gets the most glamour from being a contributor to the Volokh Conspiracy, the best law blog in the world other than Overlawyered. And he is known particularly for his writing on environmental law and administrative law. Uh, Of particular interest, I suspect, to some of you in the room, he is also a Cato intern and uh, one of the many, many proofs out there that Cato interns go on to do the greatest things. Uh, To comment, we have Andrew Pincus. Uh, He is a partner at Meyer, Brown and Platt. Uh, He has served as the general counsel of the Commerce Department in the second Clinton administration and before that in the Solicitor General's office. Uh, In the Reagan administration, he has argued 26 cases before the US Supreme Court. We are very honored to have him this afternoon. So uh, Jonathan Adler, welcome.
1: Thank you, you, uh, Wally, uh, and thank you all for coming. Um, It's a pleasure to be back at Cato. It's always fun to come back. Uh, When I interned at Cato, 27 years ago, um, it, was, it was in a much smaller location. We one of our jobs as interns was actually moving all the chairs into the living room for for events, and if the event was outside, we occasionally even had to mow the lawn. Um, I'm not kidding. We had to mow. anyway. Uh, it's an honor and pleasure to be here uh, to talk about uh, the business in the Roberts Court book, and uh, perhaps a little bit on what we can say about uh, what's likely to happen with some of these issues uh, going forward on the court. Uh, under the assumption that uh, Judge Gorsuch is confirmed as a ninth justice. Um, And and certainly appreciate Andrew coming to to give remarks. And and I should just say up front, I'm I'm very grateful uh, for uh, the work of the various contributors to the volume. Um, uh, This was a project that when uh, I began, it was one that I realized would really benefit not from my trying to uh, reach conclusions and analyze each particular area of business law, but to enlist folks Uh, that had particular expertise in various areas uh, and draw upon uh, their work. And and I'm I'm very fortunate that uh, we we were able to compile the group of folks uh, that we did. So uh, I want to say a little bit about why uh, we felt, or I felt, this was a project worth doing, uh, and then a little bit uh, why what I think the conclusions are, what lessons we can draw uh, from looking at the way the Roberts Court addresses cases that we might generally dis- define as or characterize as business-related cases. Um, and, and that certainly covers a wide range of cases. Uh, as an initial matter, you know, it's long been uh, a frustration of mine that when we talk about the Supreme Court uh, in, in our public discourse, we, our discussion tends to be fairly narrow. Uh, in two ways that, are very, that distort the way we understand and think about the court. One is we tend to folk, we want to talk about race and sex and things that are very uh, high profile and controversial, but represent a tiny fraction of what the court does. I mean, it may be the things that, these, may be the things that generate the headlines uh, in, in the newspapers, but in terms of um, the actual practice of law for the things that my students are going to do when they graduate. Um, these those are not that's not the work of the Supreme Court that matters. What the court decides about summary judgment or preemption or pleading uh, is going to matter far more uh, for the practice of law and the way the law affects what the private sector does than a lot of these hot button issues that we tend to talk about and that will in all likelihood um, uh, occupy the the majority of time uh, in in Judge Gorsuch's confirmation hearing, um, uh, and. Uh, also, in the way when we talk about the court, what we tend to do in our public discussion is we tend to reduce our discussion of particular cases to who wins and who loses uh, and not what the actual underlying legal issue is. and so and there are lots of reasons for that. I mean one of them certainly is, that in in journalism and in discussing issues, it's useful to have narrative. And if you have a compelling story that you can tell about a particular litigant, uh, that's one way to generate interest in the story. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily tell us a, a lot about what the court is actually doing. Uh, I would argue that that the court's decision, for example, in in a case like the Ledbetter case, tells us more about the court's view of how you interpret a statute than it does about um, whether or not the court was particularly concerned about Lidley Ledbetter's uh, 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 plight as an individual. There there obviously are cases where where narrative matters. uh, But if we're trying to understand what the court is doing, understand why it's reaching the conclusions it reaches, what that means for future litigation, what that means in terms of what lower courts are going to be asked to do and the judgments they're going to reach, we really want to spend more time looking at the substance of the court's decisions. Uh, what's the logic uh, that they used? What what was the holding that they reached? And what does that tell us about uh, how cases are going to be decided? And, and worse, if we try and you know, gen- reduce things to hashtags, this case was pro-business, this case was anti-worker, and so on, we're really not telling our, our, uh, ourselves much, anything much of value. It's not very informative to say a company won or a company lost, a worker won or a worker lost. What matters is what, what the claims were. Um, uh, Was the company or was the employee asking for a change in the law? Was one of them asking the court to disregard or overturn precedent? Was one of them advancing a constitutional claim? Uh, And so on. Those things matter. Um, Those things affect the texture of the law. Those things actually affect whether or not we can say the law has moved in a pro or anti-business direction, uh, not um, uh, the individuals or the individual parties in the case. Um, and the focus on the individuals and the focus on who won also, I think, obscures uh, understanding what happened, so again, just to use the Ledbetter case as an example, that's a case everyone here heard about, everyone heard about how Lily Ledbetter had been uh, uh, cheated out of raises that she apparently was entitled to, or at least allegedly was entitled to, um, but most people probably don't know that if one looks at all of the the employment discrimination cases that the Roberts Court has decided that employers have actually lost a majority of those cases. Um, uh, the Lilly Ledbetter case is the one that gets the headlines. Uh, the fact that if you were just tallying up the cases uh, that employers have lost more than they've won in those cases is not something we'd learn. So the point was to try and step away from hashtags, step away from focus on these stories and actually understand what was going on, uh, to to ask the question, what would it mean to have a pro-business court? Uh, If we characterize the court as being pro or anti-business, how do we understand what the court is actually doing? Hopefully that would help us understand, again, what's happening in terms of how the law is changing, uh, but also help us understand what to expect in the future going forward. And if you talk about the court being pro-business, there are lots of things we could think about. Well, you know, is, it, is it that the court sees a business litigant and has a soft spot for the business litigant and is more likely to side for the business that, That's one possibility. It's one that I think any serious student of the court or anyone that follows the court can, can dismiss rather quickly. Uh, but it is one you've cert- we've certainly seen in the popular press. An- another one might just be, well, the court tends to think Or the justices tend to think that the types of arguments made by business interests are are more likely than not to be correct. Right, that, that they've maybe somehow internalized the idea that what's good for General Motors is good for America. Uh, uh, and, and that would be another possibility of what we mean by pro-business. A third possibility might be that the court just happens to have in, in areas of law that matter to business doctrinal commitments that happen to just line up very neatly with what's in the interest of, of, of businesses. Um, but then another opportunity might be that the court actually isn't really interested in business at all but has other interests that for a variety of reasons in at least some areas of the law uh, happen to be, be pro-business, but in other areas of the law tend not to be. In my own view, just to, to I guess, give away the ending a little bit, I think that, that mo- in most areas, and, and I think that one of the takeaways from, this book, from the book and the various contributions is that in most cases it is this last It is this last phenomenon, that that there are things that are somewhat distinctive about the Roberts Court, distinctive about the majority of justices we currently have on the court that yield decisions in certain areas that that business finds amenable, but that are clearly not consistently pro-business, and in certain other areas tend to produce decisions that are quite antithetical to what the business community uh, uh, might like. and so uh, one, one area I guess I should say that the court clearly is, I guess we could say, pro-business, is the court, in terms of its docket, in terms of the cases it takes uh, under Chief Justice Roberts, I think has continued a trend begun in the Rehnquist court of narrowing the, the range of, ty- of cases that it takes, narrowing the criteria that the court believes justify granting certiorari. And that has resulted in a higher percentage of the docket being cases that we might characterize as business cases or cases of importance to business. Um, and that, and, and given how small the court's docket has been in the last 10 years, that, that effect is magnified. The court, um, you know, in the 80s was taking well over 100 cases a, a, a term. Uh, we have had recent terms, uh, even with nine justices, where you've, we've had 70, uh, 72 cases a term. Um, uh, the court is. Uh, taking um, uh, cases, mostly taking the cases it feels it has to take, the cases where there is a a split in the circuits. Um, Those tend to be, uh, uh, fewer of those cases tend to be uh, hot-button social issues. Um, More of those cases tend to be issues that really need to be resolved uh, for, for, Uh, legal reasons to provide consistency and uniformity. One other factor in this that that Richard Lazarus talks about in the book, uh, drawing on on a a previous paper he had uh, written for the Georgetown Law Journal, which I think is important to acknowledge, is that that the court's narrowing of its criteria for certiorari uh, has perhaps uh, played to the benefit of business in that um, the business community has taken advantage of the specialization of the Supreme Court bar in a way that perhaps other groups I have not been able to. And to to give a very quick thumbnail version of of Richard's argument, which I think is very persuasive, is that um, it is more important than ever in Supreme Court practice to have people that know what they're doing, to have people like Andrew uh, uh, on your side, people that understand what it is the court is interested in. And, And the evidence suggests that this is most important at the certiorari stage that the court doesn't want a, a petition for certiorari that just says oh look this is a cool sexy case don't you don't you really want to have fun with the briefs on this no the court wants to know that this is the type of issue that demands the court's attention uh, because there is a lack of uniformity in, in, in the law, because there is some other legal problem that really needs to be resolved. And there's reason to believe that the Supreme Court bar, as it has become more professionalized and more specialized, has really developed uh, the ability of pitching petitions for certiorari right at that sweet spot, really uh, being able, particularly effective at explaining to the court why certain sorts of cases Uh, Merit its attention, Uh, and there's a reason to believe, even if it's for no other reason than ability to pay, that the business community has certainly taken advantage of that. Now, I think one one development that's that's happened, uh, that's begun to happen more and more, and I think Richard talks about a tiny bit um, uh, in the chapter, but I know he's talked about some since then, is that there's also an increasing pro bono component to the Supreme Court bar. Uh, There's an uh, an increasing desire. Supreme Court bars, it's become more competitive. The idea that that in order to get the high-paying business cases, you got to have take a lot of other cases, and that that may have begun to equalize uh, the arms race uh, for Sir Shorari a little bit. Um, but there's no question that that um, the specialization of the Supreme Court bar has does affect um, what the court is doing. One claim that's often made about the court in terms of being pro-business that I want to spend a tiny bit of time on is uh, based on some empirical studies that are based on things like how often the Chamber of Commerce wins when it files a brief. Or uh, there is a study um, uh, done by uh, Lee Epstein, Richard Posner, and, and William Landis uh, arguing that um, when uh, one of the parties to the case is, uh, is a business, uh, that the, bus- the rate at which the business side wins. Uh, has gone up over time. Uh, I find these studies to be very problematic for a bunch of reasons. I talk about this a little bit in in my chapter, or my introductory chapter, uh, Brad Jundeff does as well. Uh, Let me explain a a few reasons why I find these studies problematic. Um, One is is that what we care about in terms of whether the law is or is not pro-business, if we think that might be a good or bad thing, what we care about is not tallying up how many cases a particular side or interest One, what we care about is substantively what happened with the law. And the reality is all cases are not created equal. Uh, And that simply tallying up wins and losses doesn't really tell us, has the law become more favorable to corporate defendants? Has it become less favorable to corporate defendants? We actually have to look at what uh, empirical, uh, folks that do empirical research of this kind tend not to want to look at, which is the actual substance of the opinions. Uh, and if we um, and so that's one feeling these studies tend to have. Secondly, they, these studies tend not to look at the baseline. So, for example, one of the empirical studies makes the claim that the Roberts court is far more pro-business than the Warren court. Um, and uh, one uh, uh, re- uh, reason for that is, well, business wins more often now than it did during the Warren court. But if one looks at the substance of the law and one looks at what the law on, say, class actions was um, in the early Warren Court, or the extent to which implied causes of action under securities laws were available and so on. As a substantive matter, business exposure to litigation in a wide range of areas is far greater now under this so-called more pro-business court than what was a less pro-business court. And the only way we can recognize that is by looking at what our baseline was. What was the substantive legal rule uh, and when we evaluate a case, we need to look at, Is was this a status quo case, or was this a case that moved the law in one direction or another? And so let me, let me just use one example to uh, illustrate both of these problems. Um, and I'll just use a very simple example that I talk about in my environmental chapter of looking at climate change litigation that illustrates both the problem of quantitative versus qualitative analysis, as well as the baseline problem. So the Supreme Court has uh, thus far Uh, in the Roberts Court uh, had three opinions in climate cases. Uh, Massachusetts versus EPA, American Electric Power versus Connecticut, and uh, UARG versus EPA. And if you look at those three cases, we have a loss for business, a win for business, and what is uh, either a win or a draw uh, for business, uh, depending on how one wants to evaluate UARG, given that business won some of the issues in that case and lost some of the others. So quantitatively, we would say, well, win, loss, draw, that's even. Maybe win-loss, partial win, business has come out ahead. And the way the quantitative studies look at this sort of thing, that, that is the way they would evaluate the sum total of these cases. If they count justices, which some of these cases do, they would say, oh, look, a big swing towards a lot of sympathy for business. Because Massachusetts versus EPA was 5 to 4. Business lost. But eight, American Electric Power was 8-0. Business won. So just taking those two cases together, we have 12 pro-business votes. We only have five anti-business votes. UERG gets complicated because on one issue it's 5-4, another issue it's 7-2. Uh, um, but what's the substance of these cases? Well, Massachusetts versus EPA um, uh, was uh, res- resulted in a dramatic expansion of federal regulatory authority over American industry by holding, among other things, that greenhouse gases are subject to regulation under the Clean Air Act. In terms of the practical effect of that decision, that was earth shattering. Uh, That was a massive expansion of EPA's regulatory power. We may think the decision was correct. We may think it was incorrect. Just as a descriptive matter, the stakes in that case were huge. Stakes in American electric power were Virtually nothing. It was basically the court held that its longstanding rule uh, uh, about displacement of federal common law remedies where there is a federal regulatory scheme should be followed. Uh, Business one, eight to zero, and uh, the consequence was tort cases that never before had been allowed were still not allowed. It did nothing to roll back Massachusetts versus EPA. And in fact, the folks that originally brought the Massachusetts versus EPA litigation knew at the time, that if they won that litigation, the tort remedies they were seeking in the AEP versus Connecticut litigation would disappear. And that's precisely what happened. Uh, UARG uh, UARG held that one, in relevant part, that one portion of the Clean Air Act that could be applied to greenhouse gases as a consequence of Massachusetts versus EPA would not be. So we could say it's a slight rollback of the regulatory expansion that Massachusetts versus EPA required. So the practical effect of these three decisions after, at the end of the day is uh, the business community is exposed to far more environmental regulation than it was prior to these cases. It's also arguably exposed to greater litigation risk because of the expansion of standing uh, in Massachusetts versus EPA. So the legal environment in this area is far more anti-business than it was before this litigation. But yet if we evaluate it quantitatively, we say, in fact, it was a draw or business came out ahead. Uh, And we can replicate this in in area after area. The point is that these quantitative studies don't tell us the things we really really care about. I should note that saying this is pro or anti-business doesn't tell us anything by itself about the merits. Here I'm just being descriptive about how we understand the implications of these cases, not whether or not we should think they are a good thing or a bad thing. Some of the empirical studies have other problems. One of them, for example, decided to build its data set merely by looking at the caption of the cases. So if there wasn't a business in the caption, it wasn't included in the data set. So Massachusetts versus EPA is not even included. You know, Arguably, one of the most significant business-related cases in the entire Roberts Court isn't even included in one of these studies because the caption of the case was mass- a state versus an agency. There wasn't a business in the caption. Um, and and there are a lot of in the environmental area in particular, there are a lot of cases that are of great importance to business that don't come up if you're if you're just focused on the way the case is captioned. So I don't think the empirical studies, um, uh, as, as they're done, do or if they're not done carefully, uh, do a whole lot. We do have a couple of empirical studies in the in the book, uh, one by Brad Jundef I think does provides the useful. Uh, or, window of looking at, at, at the litigation of, say, the Chamber of Commerce and say, OK, the Chamber of Commerce is a repeat player. They file a lot of briefs. If we want to know if they're disproportionately successful, we need some benchmark. And so one of the things he does is compare the Chamber of Commerce to the Solicitor General's Office. And he finds that, um, uh, using that as a benchmark, the the, the argument that the Chamber of Commerce is is, is somehow disproportionately influential loses some steam. Although one thing he also finds, though, is that if the Solicitor General's Office and the Chamber of Commerce are on the same side, there is a very good chance that that's the side that's going to win, just uh, quantitatively. And that's very interesting. Uh, One thing that might uh, help explain some of that is not merely the the respect the court has for the Solicitor General's office, but also the fact that the the Chamber of Commerce has the ability to sit out cases that it knows are losing causes. Uh, And there is reason to believe that, at least in some subject areas, the Chamber of Commerce doesn't spend time on briefs uh, in cases where it doesn't think it has much chance of winning, which would also affect uh, its win-loss rate. So those are some things uh, uh, some reasons why I don't like the empirical studies. What can we say quantitatively or qualitatively about uh, uh, the court? Um, uh, again, my view is that when you look at the, across the board uh, at the way the court handles the substance of business issues or business related issues, um, we see that the court's winning or the business community is winning in some areas and not in others. And if we want to understand why that is, we actually have to understand the other things that the court is paying attention to. Because I think that when you look at these cases, business is not what it's paying attention to. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, certainly in some subject areas, what we see is the court doesn't pay a lot of attention to the subject matter. Adam Pritchard from Michigan has a, a, a chapter looking at securities law where one of the things he finds is that the Roberts Court's taken a lot of securities cases. But if you read the cases, they don't read as securities law cases. The court has no, the justices show no particular interest in the subject matter or what might be distinct about securities law cases. He he notes that there have been justices historically that cared a lot about securities law. Uh, Justice Douglas had been on the SEC. Uh, Justice Powell showed a clear interest in his opinions about the distinct characteristics of securities law. You read these cases, in his view, and what you see instead is attention to text, attention to statutory interpretation, attention to questions about when you find an implied cause of action and when you don't. The court cares about those questions. But the securities law subject matter is almost incidental. Uh, in the environmental context, uh, I, I argue we see the same thing. I'm not the only one who've, who's pointed that out. It's, it's hard to find many environmental opinions in the Roberts court where any justice, on any side of the case, says much of anything about the environment and why the environment might be of particular importance. Massachusetts versus EPA is an exception. Justice Stevens does uh, focus on environmental concerns in the opening of that decision. Uh, His dissent in Rapanos uh, is notable in that regard as well. Otherwise, what do these cases look like? They look like statutory interpretation cases. They look like cases about administrative law. Uh, And that's a pattern that I think Uh, you see over and over again. And what that, I think, indicates is that in a lot of these areas, the court does have commitments about how to read statutes. It does have commitments about presumptions, about how easy or not easy it should be to get into court. Um, But those are the things that are driving uh, what the court's doing, not the fact that there might be business interests in the case. Uh, Another example of the court really caring about something other than business would be Citizens United. And Joel Gora has a chapter in the book uh, making the case, again, I think quite persuasively, that this is a court that cares a lot about the First Amendment. And Justice Kennedy, in particular, cares a lot about the First Amendment. And Justice Kennedy, in particular, unless you're talking about students um, or government employees, uh, doesn't like things that look at all like possible limitations on speech of any kind. And it doesn't matter if it's lies about your military record or or, or films uh, depicting animal cruelty or uh, uh, commercial speech or speech related to campaigns. Justice Kenney doesn't like any of those regulations. And when you read Citizens United and you look in the background of what the court's doing in the First Amendment, what's doing the work is not that Citizens United might help or hurt business. It's that this is a court that has a very uh, 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 uh absolutist view towards most First Amendment questions driven mostly by Justice Kennedy. Last thing I'll say uh, ab- about what what we see in this in the, this court is this is a court that I, I would argue is, is a very, it tries to be, and I emphasize that tries to be, because it's not always successful, tries to be a fairly minimalist and status quo court. I say tries to be because there are exa- areas like Citizens United where that clearly, where it clearly isn't. Um, And what that means for the business community is, is that the court is a very effective shield. When a plaintiff's attorney comes in with a new theory about a new way to construct a class for the purposes of a class action suit, this is a court that's extremely skeptical of that. If it hasn't been allowed before, this is not a court that's sympathetic to opening a new door, creating a new avenue for litigation. This is not a court that's going to find an implied cause of action in a statute where that implied cause of action has not been found before. But the flip side is is that when the business community comes in and says, oh, this litigation is terrible, make it all go away, the court's attitude is, well, we've already decided that question, stare decisis. And so you see cases like Stone Ridge in which the court says, we're not going to close any doors that prior courts have opened, we're just going to maintain the status quo. Uh, we are going to, you know, uh, and, you, and, you, and similarly, this minimalist out, uh, orientation shows up in cases in which the business community is trying to get the court to think more broadly. Uh, the court resolves cases in very narrow ways. So, in a case like Sackett, a case involving uh, the right to challenge uh, jurisdictional determinations made by the Army Corps of Engineers and the EPA under the Clean Water Act, there were these very uh, interesting due process issues under the surface that could have driven the court's decision. The court instead said, no, this is, this is basic administrative law, presumption of reviewability under the Administrative Procedure Act, unanimous decision. There's really nothing special going on here. Uh, what's particularly interesting about that is that just before taking the second decision, where there was no circuit split, on this precise question at issue, because all the lower courts had gone the other way. General Electric had been trying to get the court to to consider a very similar question about the ability to challenge administrative compliance orders from the EPA. And the court had no interest. Um, uh, The court had an interest when uh, the case was being brought by a small landowner, but decided the case in the narrowest way possible. Um, the Exxon punitive uh, shipping punitive damages case, similar question. The court went out of its way to say we are not reiterating anything about constitutional limits about punitive damages. This is about admiralty common law, very very narrow. You know, sweet generous. This instance, um, the court has not, in any of these areas, in takings law and so on, really opened up these new. Uh, avenues of, of, of litigation for the business community. It's merely protected the business community from plaintiff's attorneys uh, from opening up new avenues. So, so it's, a, it's a court that is um, uh, refusing to open doors, uh, but not closing ones that are already open. Uh, lastly, because um, uh, I've, uh, I've probably already gone on more than I should, let me just say a tiny bit about Judge Gorsuch. Um, uh, you know, he does share some things with Justice Scalia, which I think are in line with some of these tendencies. He clearly is very interested in text um, uh, and I think is like, and I think you see in some of his opinions in some of these areas, the same sort of thing. You know, is this an employment law case? Is it a securities case? Is this an environmental case? No, it's it's an administrative law case. It's a statutory interpretation case, and he 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 tends to share, I think, the orientation of a lot of the justices on the court on focusing on what it is the court's being asked to do, not the subject matter or the story that's being told uh, about it. Um, one, uh, two areas just really briefly that are worth noting. One area where the court has not been particularly pro-business, and I think uh, was poised to be. Um, to be very disappointing to business is the dormant commerce clause. A lot of scholars have noted that the court has signaled that it thinks prior courts were too aggressive in striking down state legislation on dormant commerce clause grounds. Justice Scalia voiced a lot of skepticism of the dormant commerce clause. Uh, Judge Gorsuch has at least one, if not more, opinions suggesting that the court should err on being being more permissive of state regulation, uh, and that's certainly not something the business community would like. And then. Depending on what one's view of Chevron is, um, uh, we know Judge Gorsuch has has raised some questions about Chevron. And if you think that Chevron is is a thorn in the side of the business community, I'm not sure that it is. But if you believe that it is, uh, that might be an area where uh, he might push the court to perhaps be a little more pro-business than it's been. Um, But I will stop there. I look forward to Andrew's uh, uh, comments and to your questions. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, Well, first of all, thanks uh, very much to Cato for for inviting me. And and thanks to Jonathan and his colleagues for the opportunity to to read a really interesting uh, book. Uh, As someone who frequently, although not exclusively, represents business uh, and business associations before the court, I sort of wasn't sure what I was going to read when I opened the the volume. Um, But it really is a terrific. A debunking, I think, of some very simplistic arguments that you heard Jonathan talking about—that you know this is a court that's that's pro-business and so the business side wins. It would might be nice, less intellectually satisfying for me, if it were as easy as standing up and saying, "I'm here representing the X Y Z corporation, and the business community really, really, really wants you to rule in our favor," and then sit down. But it just doesn't work that way, and I think. Uh, What's clear, and and the book does a terrific job of detailing this in a number of areas, is the justices, not surprisingly, have pretty well-defined jurisprudential views on a lot of things. And those views, in some instances, may coincide with outcomes the business community wants. Uh, They may not in other areas where the business community is disappointed. But the sort of colloquial discussion of, you know, is the court pro-business and does business win or lose? True, businesses win or lose. But I think it really diminishes the, dialogue and also, and I'll talk about this a little bit more, I think is being used by some people to, to sort of delegitimize the court in some ways when when the discussion is uh, this is a pro-business ruling and business wins and, and we'll tote up the rulings and say this is a much more pro-business court. Because although it's true that businesses may win more, more uh, Cases that doesn't really mean it's a pro business court. I think those are two quite different things, and I think in our in our discussion they 've gotten merged in a way that uh, that I think is very disturbing. Uh, just to give a little personal anecdote a, a number of years ago. Uh, After a term in which uh, the business side won a number of cases, I I got to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee at a hearing with the very neutral title, Barriers to Justice and Accountability, How the Supreme Court's Recent Rulings Will Affect Corporate Behavior, uh, where the the thesis of the hearing really was the terrible Supreme Court is is pro-business and is uh, erecting, uh, barriers to consumer rights and other people, just for the reason of doing that, not because there was any jurisprudentially justified reason in, in reaching those decisions, so I really do want to want to talk some about that distinction, because I think that distinction in our dialogue is becoming increasingly important. But first, let me talk a little bit about the debunking of some of these arguments, because I I think it's important. And for someone who appears before the court, nothing is more frustrating than someone at the end of the term toting up the numbers and saying, well, the business side won 10 cases, and the non-business side won nine. And so that obviously means the court is pro-business. When, as Jonathan said, what do these cases do? Uh, On a number of vectors, do they Are they decisions that just reaffirm what the law is? Many of the court's cases, most of them, are conflict cases. So in some parts of the country, uh, maybe most parts of the country, the rule that the court selects is already the norm. So the idea that there's some dramatic pro-business benefit from whatever the court is going to do is is just not right. Uh, The other baseline is, how important is it? Jonathan illustrated that well uh, with Mass against EPA. Uh, it's certainly true in, some, in the securities area. Adam Pritchard's article talks about this. Uh, there were some quite minor securities decisions dealing with removal and other issues. And then there was this Blockbuster Halliburton that business won. And then there was this Blockbuster Halliburton uh, case that put the question of the fraud on the market doctrine uh, squarely at issue before the court. And that's one of the cases where, as Jonathan pointed out, the court said, well, we're not going to disturb this rule. True, it was adopted uh, by a Small, uh, a court that only had seven justices participating in the case, and, and true, there were so probably maybe there were some flaws in the reasoning, but we're just not going to go back and, and reopen uh, that in a in a decision that really uh, keeps securities fraud class actions uh, alive and well. Even though I think many economists would tell you uh, there's no economic justification for them at all. Um. Let me talk a little bit about the case selection issue, uh, because I I think that's an an important uh, area. One thing that, that many Supreme Court advocates will tell you about case selection is, of course, the threshold question is who actually wants their case decided by the Supreme Court. If the prevailing jurisprudence on the issue that you're thinking about is not in your favor, Uh, you're not going to be rushing to get your issue decided by the court. Maybe if you're an institutional litigant, you're very happy with the fact that your view has prevailed in four or five circuits around the country. That's the rule of law that people are operating under. And if you go to the Supreme Court with the case, uh, you could have the opposite rule prevailing in the whole country. So in a world where the jurisprudential approaches of the justices may mean that some consumer side or plaintiff's lawyer side uh, arguments aren't going to prevail, those people aren't trying to bring cases to the court. So it may not be that surprising that the docket is skewed at the outset, because it's often the if you believe, and I think the book does a very good job of showing that in a number of areas, it just happens that justices jurisprudential views are going to lead to an outcome that the business side wants, uh, of course you want to get your case to the court. And the converse is also true. If you think you're going to lose, you're not rushing to get your case to the court. So I, I would be a little skeptical about looking at the case selection um, decisions as something that is indicative of some interest in even uh, protecting business or or deciding issues that business want to be wants to be decided. It may just be that one side of some of these issues is actually much more actively trying to get them before the court. Uh, than others. That's certainly true if you look at an area that's unrelated to business. Take criminal law. Most of the cases that the court takes are uh, cases in which states are uh, petitioning. Uh, part of that is because of deference to states. But part of that is because that criminal defense lawyers are not expecting a lot of victories, except in some very narrow areas. So there's not an intense effort by the organized criminal defense bar community to to prepare and manage issues to get them to the Supreme Court uh, with the expectation that there will be a big triumph there if they do that. Uh, So one reason to view case selection with skepticism. Um, The other thing, and and I've had this discussion with with Richard Lazarus, who's a former colleague of mine from the SG's office and a great professor, is it's true there is a Supreme Court bar nowadays. uh, But it's also true that there is no case that's a credible cert candidate that won't have the opportunity to be worked on by a Supreme Court expert, whether it's the plaintiff side, the defense side, environment, criminal defense. There are lots of people out there uh, who are very eager to work on cases uh, that have a chance of going to the court uh, and often will do so uh, for little or no money. They may be in institutions that provide that uh, service. They may be on law school faculties. They may be in law school clinics. So there's a lot of help out there on all sides of the equation. Uh, one reality has been that the business community has been more willing to take up that help than other uh, other areas. Uh, some people have just, maybe for reasons of territoriality or whatever, uh, the idea of using Supreme Court experts just hasn't caught on as much in, in other parts of the uh, bar that appears before the court. That's changing, actually. I think it's it's much more frequent now, uh, even in, in areas representation of labor unions, representation of environmental groups, things that really didn't happen even five years ago, much more uh, of a, an effort to use the Supreme Court bar. So I think there, too, while the business community may have been an early adapter, uh, the idea that there is some imbalance in advocacy, I think, doesn't really hold much water uh, anymore. Um, the other thing uh, that I think is changing a little bit is is what is pro business. Uh, in some areas, that's really up for grabs. Um, and I trust, for example, almost in every case. Uh, and the piece uh, in the book notes this. There are businesses on both sides. They may be small business versus big business. Sometimes they're big business versus big business. Uh, so the idea that some kinds of rulings uh, are necessarily pro-business or anti-business or that there is a pro-business position, I think, is, is much harder to find than it used to be. And, and that's also true uh, on the other side. There are issues that the business community now cares about that it didn't care about before. Uh, in the Windsor and Obergefell cases, huge amicus briefs participation by the business community. Especially in the Windsor case involving DOMA, there were real burdens on business uh, from a rule uh, that had a different marriage standard uh, under federal law than under state law. And a lot of businesses said, we just can't actually cope with this. Um, So not a case where you'd expect the business community to appear. Just yesterday, 53 businesses, including some very large businesses, filed an amicus brief in the transgender case. Uh, A number of businesses filed an amicus brief in the Texas immigration case last term. So the definition of business and what interests business and what business cares about is quite different from the sort of conventional Uh, regulatory, what's going to affect directly affect the bottom line stereotype that that I think some people uh, like to promote. And then some some things are characterized as business issues uh, that don't really uh, have much interest in business. And at the top of the list, I would put campaign finance reform. Campaign finance reform is really something that was a focus of politically minded groups and to some extent the ACLU. And the idea that big business especially cared much about Citizens United and a number of the other campaign finance issues that have come before the court is just not true. That doesn't really influence them. Many large companies don't want to be in the position of being able to make political contributions because then they're going to be asked to make them. Uh, so <coughs> there is really quite a, uh, again, an issue that is at the top of the list, I think, in terms of business, but, but really isn't something that at least the larger elements of the business community really care about. So I think in all of these things, it just shows you that it's one thing to look at issues and talk about them and talk about how the court decides them. And the book is very valuable for, for really providing in a number of these issues areas some great common sense discussion of how the issues are decided. Uh, but to step back and, and, and look at the premise, business in the Roberts Court, and is this a pro-business court, um, I think the answer uh, is that's really, why are we asking that question? Um, I, I think, and going back to what I said at the beginning, I, I think it's a little bit of a concerning element in our, in our dialogue that we now want to um, sort of, characterize judicial decisions as something that are really based on things that are not what the judges say they're deciding they're based on, and really illegitimate criteria. Um, I don't think anyone would say that last term, where businesses actually lost two out of three class action cases, uh, that the justices who voted uh, for the plaintiff's side there are the plaintiff's class action court. And you know, I don't think Justice Scalia and the other justices who voted uh, pretty frequently in the Fourth Amendment area uh, for the criminal defense side were the pro-criminal court. Uh, and and many of the people who today are happy to label the Roberts court the pro-business court, uh, I think probably would recoil in horror at the idea that the Warren court uh, was labeled was labeled the pro-criminal court. Uh, which was the derogatory label used at that time, so in one sense, these are shorthand descriptions, as Jonathan said, you know they're about outcomes, uh, and maybe they're just a shorthand way of describing outcomes. But I do think whether intended or not, uh, they pretty clear quickly morph into being the description of the reason that the court reaches that conclusion, and I think that's the destructive part of our dialogue because I think if you look at reporting now of lower court cases. It's de rigueur in any case that has any political saliency for the uh, political party of the president who appointed the members of the panel to be reported in that decision. It's not secret. It certainly can be reported. But what's the implication? Of course, the implication is judges vote on a party line basis. Uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, I've appeared before a lot of judges. I know some. And I think they're actually pretty conscientious people. And I don't think they're voting on a party line basis. Do their worldview and their experience influence how they vote? Sure. But I don't think they say, this is a Republican administration. I was appointed by a Democrat, so of course, I have to stop them from doing what they're doing. Um, And I do think if you step back and look at that dialogue, the corrosive effect is, does it ultimately delegitimize courts or begin to undermine respect for the judicial process? Um, I do think, whether intended or not, that's the ultimate effect. And, you know, Justice Thomas gave a a speech at the end of October about the sort of current culture in Washington that tears down people and institutions. And I, I think as lawyers who care about government and the Constitution, uh, we have to be very careful about uh, how we approach these issues, because that's not something we want to happen to the judicial system.
0: <clears throat> well, thank you, uh, Jonathan and Andrew. And I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative, usually to ask a question, but I may just ramble on for a minute or two about themes uh, from the book that I um Uh, would add to what has just been said because the question is the Roberts Court too pro-business is always implicitly compared to to what and uh, what I take from that question is that it's more pro-business than the person asking the question the person asking the question wishes it were more anti- business but realistically uh, the comparators are likely to be others. For example, is it more pro-business than the Rehnquist Court? And we were discussing, uh, and, and have discussed elsewhere, uh, that the if you look at the areas where the court really has moved the ball uh, in a uh, changed the law in a direction that has helped business litigants, you find more of that with the Rehnquist Court than with the Roberts Court. You find it uh, in their decisions on punitive damages in the Constitution, in their um, Changes to procedure, like the summary judgment trilogy and uh, uh, Daubert and expert witness testimony, most of which have stood the test of time pretty well and are accepted by um, judges who disagree on other things. Uh, Roberts' court more cautious. um, You can also ask, compared to what, as far as the presidents who appointed them, are they they more pro-business somehow than the presidents who appointed them expected them to be? And I would just, thinking back over the various presidents we've had, none of them have been Bernie Sanders. It may be that a quarter of the American population wishes there were Bernie Sanders-type judges, but uh, I don't think that... Bill Clinton intended to appoint anti business firebrands, and he did not. Ginsburg and Breyer are not anti business firebrands. And the, the fact that the Democratic appointees have not been anti business firebrands contributes very, very substantially to the fact that there is not much of a constituency on the court to hear cases dramatically expanding um, uh, new rights to sue and, and that sort of thing. I, you can say, compared to what, uh, compared with the general drift of informed um, uh, public opinion. And here, I I thought the antitrust chapter was interesting, because antitrust is one area where it's about as clear as any other single area that there's been a pro-business trend, if you believe that a pro-defendant trend is a pro-business trend. Um, it's certainly one that is typically welcome to libertarians. Um, even if there are businesses on both sides, but even as the court has drifted toward being less and less impressed with the possibility for antitrust law to do a lot of good, exactly the same thing has happened of Congress and the executive branch, which is why there isn't a lot of bickering among the three branches. Everyone has been affected by the Chicago School. Uh, It it has permeated Democrats and Republicans alike. It has permeated um, even the antitrust division of the Justice Department. And so the court, on that and on quite a few of these other issues, is wi- riding a wider intellectual trend. You may like that trend or dislike it, but it's not really distinctive to the uh, the, the court. And I, finally, I would throw in, there is one, as you might say, control group, a group of jurists who um, are, on many issues, independent of the Supreme Court's direction, but get to decide some of the same issues, and I'm thinking of the uh, state courts, and in particular the justices of state supreme courts. Um, I've written a series of books about the legal system, and I can tell you an awful lot of the litigation explosion, as, as it was experienced in America, was driven by state supreme courts being wildly liberal. You know, California, New Jersey, um, and, and many others were churning out this dramatically anti-business new precedent uh, and new doctrine throughout the 70s and 80s. And there is nothing that would keep them from doing so with a few exceptions like the supreme court's punitive damage jurisprudence by and large they could go right on doing that but they aren't Um, they too have pulled in their horns they too are more pro-business in the same liberal states uh, where the same um, uh, courts have a liberal reputation they are no longer uh, as feared by the business community in most cases so i would say Uh, My my hypothesis is that you have an intellectual trend here that is being dressed up as uh, a a matter of individual personalities on the Supreme Court. So there's my tirade. Um, (coughs) uh, My question, because I I should have a question, is uh, specifically about uh, the next vacancy or two on the court. Because uh, I will say, having been at a number of panel discussions recently, that every panel discussion that was planned more than about 90 days ago was planned with the completely opposite expectation of what the problems and issues would be. Um, I was expecting that there would be uh, a shift toward a more um, liberal court coming up, and I'll bet a lot of you were too, and we were uh, therefore prepared to ask which issues are going to tip that were 5 for before. Uh, those issues, most of us could guess, are not likely to tip because Gorsuch is so much like uh, Scalia. But what are, you mentioned the dormant commerce clause. What are other issues where the court may be backing away or where we may see real change even without uh, a Democratic president?
1: That's a good question. I mean, the dormant commerce clause, I think, is 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 the most obvious one because the court has been signaling for a while that, um, or, or multiple justices have been signaling for a while that they think prior courts were too aggressive at striking down state statutes for in, for inhibiting interstate commerce. Um, and uh, you know, this is not original to me. Other other folks have pointed this out, but you know, it's hard to imagine, for example, the Supreme Court striking down. Uh, something under under the pike test or, uh, today um, uh, you have several justices that you would normally think of, of as of being sympathetic to economic interests or to business interests who are also those who have been most critical of the dormant Commerce Clause because it's arguably a textual and doesn't have the the originalist grounding that those same justices would like so Justice Scalia had been critical Justice Thomas extremely critical uh, uh, in particular of the Dorm of Commerce Clause. So that's the one that I think is the top of the list. I mean, there's some other areas that the Roberts Court hasn't addressed, uh, didn't address directly, punitive damages being one. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, even prior to, to Justice Scalia's death, I don't think there were five votes anymore on the court to strike down punitive damages for violating, being excessive under the Due Process Clause. Uh-huh. Um, I think Exxon won um, its case because it was this, Federal common law of Admiralty book, you know, kind of odd area um, uh, that doesn't come up very much. Um, uh, I, as, I, I if I had to guess, I would assume that that Gorsuch shares um, uh, Justice's, Justice Scalia's skepticism there um, of of that being a uh, an a textual limitation. There's some administrative law areas where I think we're in flux and and. You know, I don't believe Chevron is gonna be overturned by the court, um, if Congress wants to, then it's another matter, but I don't think the court's gonna do that. Uh, I do think our uh, deference, or Seminole Rock deference, the idea of deference to agencies' interpretations of their own regulations uh, is vulnerable, um, uh, and the business community certainly is very concerned about that, because the business community, at least portions of the business community, feel that guidance documents and things like that are used by regulatory agencies to create leverage on a regulated entities. The interesting thing about this area of the law, though, is that it's this underlying question about deference to agency interpretations of their own regulations is across the board. Uh, I mean, the court, until the, the Trump administration withdrew the guidance, the court had the potential to address this question in, in the transgender bathroom case. Um, uh, where the part of the case was that there was this letter that had been written by um, an official in the Department of Education saying, oh, this is how we are now interpreting our, our old regulation. Um, and the Fourth Circuit relied upon that. Um, so, you know, there are, that is an area that, that I think the business community is watching very closely um, uh, that, um, and cares a lot about, but could come up, you know, might come up in a business case but could also come up, you know, in immigration, in civil rights. It come up in a lot of other, um, a lot of other contexts. Um, you know, I think we'll get some clues as well. I mean, there's a there's there's some areas like commercial speech that I think are in potentially in some flux. The court has a commercial speech case this term um, that I, I think a oral argument they they there were some conf- they weren't quite sure how to view, um, but that's an area that I think. It's possible we could see some movement, um, dep- and particularly depending on whether or not both uh, Justice Gorsuch but also future nominees differ from uh, the justices they replace.
0: Do you, do you have any thoughts?
2: Um, well, I just, I guess I would say about the Commerce Clause, I certainly agree that the Pike balancing test is probably, if it even still exists, which it probably doesn't, uh, won't exist for very long. I, I do think discrimination certainly expresses the Express discrimination against interstate commerce and either, and even some of the elaboration on that by the court is pretty well established and I think uh, will be hard to back away from and, and also has some federalism undertones to it because it's really about protecting uh, some other states often from, uh, from, the, from the overreaching of, of one state. Uh, In terms of other areas, I think it's awfully hard to tell uh, where things are going to go. I I think Justice Scalia certainly cared a lot about the private litigation system and the abuses of it. And I think we'll just have to see whether his successor cares as much about those things. Uh, I think there's certainly, it's encouraging to have someone on the court who's actually experienced the wonders of the private litigation system and representing a litigant. Uh, because I think you really do have to know uh just how uh, burdensome it is in order to sort of have a sense of what 's going on behind the curtain uh, that that judges and justices don't don 't see and i think that's the other thing that will be interesting having someone who who has a uh, represented private parties uh like the chief justice is i I do think there is um One of the problems in the court is that, uh, as the docket has shrunk and the focus is on circuit splits, uh, cases that are really important but aren't cases in terms of their real-world implications but may not represent a circuit split, and in fact may not ever represent a circuit split because the costs of noncompliance are so large, don't get reviewed. And I think one hope is having another member of the court who's been in the real world where uh, parties have to comply with things and where the impact of legal rules is not how many cases there are in court, but what the effect is on people's primary conduct uh, may mean that there'll be more of those kinds of cases taken.
0: Okay, Uh, We're going to turn to you now, the audience, for questions and a few ground rules. Uh, Please wait to be called on. Uh, Wait for the uh, microphone. Uh, If I call on you so that everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear the question, Uh, and when you uh, ask your question, please first state your name and affiliation. Um, So, um, yes, um, there. Uh, There's been a lot of controversies, I'm sorry, Jim Duhom unaffiliated, uh,
1: about the uh, administrative judges on the SEC
0: uh, making many more decisions uh, than they formerly have. Uh, And my question is, is that an issue that's headed toward the high court? And if so, uh, how are they likely to handle it? Just to reiterate it, because I suspect a lot of the audience doesn't know uh, that Controversy closely. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, when it files a complaint against you, may be able to take that complaint to its own administrative law judges uh, rather than uh, a regular court. And its uh, success record at convincing its own judges is pretty impressive, uh, which uh, has led for a long time, not just recently, uh, to. Um, criticism from libertarians and others of should agencies really be able to get the benefit of in-house judges um, uh, or should uh, separation of powers require that those particular powers of prosecution as it were and and judgment be separated Um, I believe there is now a circuit split on the question yeah one circuit has approved the SEC's use of its own administrative law judges and another one has questioned it and uh, um, that is a red flag that yes it may be at the supreme so court. Although
2: the the circuit split is on a pretty narrow issue right, this, right. the question the question and the DC circuit just granted rehearing on banc last week or two weeks ago on this issue and we'll we'll hear the case uh later this spring. Uh it's really who appoints ALJs. Does it have to be an agent? Are they inferior officers in which case they'd have to be appointed by an agency head? Uh, or they are employees, which means anyone can appoint them. They aren't now at the SEC and most agencies appointed by agency heads. So that would require a change in the appointment process. I'm not quite sure that that change in the appointment process is going to have much of a change in the real world uh, effect of ALJ. So there is then this broader question, uh, which I think is probably one that ultimately is going to have to be resolved by Congress and not in the courts, about, as Walter said, Is there something wrong with the structure that lets the prosecutor pick the favorable forum uh, with the target of the government enforcement action having nothing to say about that decision?
1: Yes. And um, predicting, I mean, there are a couple areas, actually, where we have cases working their way up through the lower courts that relate to the structure of governmental agencies and who appoints the people in them and so on and whether or not they're removable. That I think will end up in the Supreme Court, and it's a question of when. I mean, I think it's possible the D.C. Circuit will decide, will will agree with the Tenth Circuit that the SEC's ALJs are unconstitutional, but I'm skep- I mean, I'm skeptical of that. Um, so I think we, the circuit split will survive the en banc review, and so then I, then the court will definitely take it. Um, The D.C. Circuit is also reviewing on banc um, the the panel decision that held that the composition of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the way that the the head of that is selected and insulated from removal is um, unconstitutional. Um, That's a good candidate for certiorari because it's it's really hard to get a circuit split on that question and the court knows that. Uh, And I think the court is interested in these kind of formalistic questions about how you structure governmental agencies. A lot at stake. Uh, I, I don't think we know a lot about what Judge Gorsuch thinks about these these cases, and um, these cases come along rarely enough that it is hard to. I think it's sometimes hard to predict. I mean, I think Noel Canning, most watchers thought that the National Relation National Labor Relations Board was going to lose. I don't think that many folks thought they were going to lose nine zero, um, which they did. So, you know, it, it's it's. I do think the court. Year or two from now, we'll deal with both of those questions. Um, not confident making a prediction on on how it'll decide. We'll decide. It will decide
0: it will decide its not uh, area in much dynamic flux, not only because these interesting cases have come up and the court has been taking an interest. The Obama administration was aggressive in some ways on the issues. And rumor reaches us from uh, legal figures in the Trump administration that the Trump administration may wish to be aggressive in different ways and stretch some of its own potential authority, um, uh, which would almost certainly lead to a bigger docket for the Supreme Court. So thank you for the question. Yes, sir. Microphone.
3: Uh, yes, uh, my name is Cami, but I'm with the Pakistani Spectator, and my question is that how Republican Party, or Republican President, can make sure that whoever they select, uh, justice for Supreme Court, would stay conservative, and my question is specifically about Ju- Justice Robert. Uh, he was conservative, but the way he helped Democrat Party or President Obama through Obamacare, it was very disappointing uh, to Republicans. And given that Democrat cannot get more liberal uh, president than President Trump, uh, any justice uh, in future would keep that in mind, that what is his mindset, and then He or she would go with the political wind rather than what Republican uh, people or Republican American uh, uh, Republican people want in their important decision. Thanks.
1: And yeah, I mean, uh, you know, predicting what someone's going to do on the court is hard, and it's hard for a couple reasons. One is, you know, we usually see nominees who were lower court judges. But if they were good lower court judges, they're very concerned about following precedent, both Supreme Court precedent and their own circuit precedent, which is binding on them. And they don't have very many opportunities to kind of operate without a net the way the Supreme Court does. So in the Supreme Court, if you don't like a precedent, you can overrule it if uh, you, you can convince four of your colleagues to go along, or you know, if you just want to point out that you're ready to do so. Once four of your colleagues agree, you can write that separate opinion and say, "Hey, you know, bring me this case. I'm ready to." You know, lower court ju- judges don't really get that opportunity, and so it's hard. Now, what the current conventional wisdom on what you want to look at, uh, on, on, at least on the right side of the spectrum, the current conventional wisdom on what you want to look at. To get an indication of what a justice is likely to 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 do, and this I think did influence the, the Gorsuch selection. Um, one is extrajudicial writings or writings that of, of a judge by themselves, so separate concurrences and dissents. But even more important, things that the individual wrote outside the context of a case that may give a clearer indication of the what of what they think about the law. Just, Chief Justice Roberts had written relatively little. Um, uh, he had uh, written a paper on standing um, uh, based on the Luhan case, which I guess he had argued in the Solicitor General's office, and his approach to standing has been very consistent with that, with that article. Um, he hadn't written as much about some of the other issues where um, some conservatives have found him disappointing. The other thing that um, uh, you hear talked about a lot is um, uh, uh, b- a belief that executive branch experience, um is likely to have steeled a, a, a potential nominee against being unduly influenced by politics and criticism. And, and I don't know if this I'm not sure if I entirely buy this theory, but the argument you hear made a lot is that if you look at the 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 Republican nominees that have been what the people nominating them have wanted them to be, versus those that have grown or gone soft or whatever the, you're supposed to say. Um, there's a belief that typically those that worked in the executive branch and therefore were subject to the dc environment and the criticism you get from the media and so on um and persisted uh, are more likely to persist on, on on the court whereas those that maybe you know their experience had been in new hampshire and california or somewhere else and really didn't know what it was like to to write unpopular opinions and be criticized for it and didn't know what it might be like to be praised by the New York Times uh, or, or perhaps more likely to be influenced those things. Again, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I, I think that that's a good predictor, but that is that you, you certainly see in certain circles that being pointed to as, as something that is an indicator of whether or not uh, a, a, a justice is likely to be consistent over time.
0: Are there more questions? OK, we will break then for refreshments. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Is there one? Yes, sir. And this will be the last question, but thank you. Go ahead. Uh,
1: yeah. So uh, Kenneth Jost with Supreme Court Yearbook. John, good to see you. Um, and um, as long as you just said that Chief Justice Roberts has been consistent on standing, I- I'd like to hear you explain how it's consistent that he voted against standing in the Massachusetts climate change case, but uh, he must have voted in favor of standing in the Texas immigration case. Sure. And, and surely an objective observer would say, Texas's standing in the immigration case was weaker than the Massachusetts standing in, to, in the Massachusetts standing to protect its own uh, land. So, um, I mean, a couple of reasons well, I mean, I I, and I should just say, I mean, I was on an amicus brief for Cato in Massachusetts versus EPA, arguing no standing, and I joined Ernie Young's amicus brief in Texas, saying there was uh, standing in Texas, even though I think the administration's policy at issue in the Texas case was probably lawful. Um, complicated, but I think there you know the Massachusetts injury, based on the affidavits in Massachusetts versus EPA, could not simultaneously be concrete and particularized and actual or imminent. That is to say, the only things Massachusetts could point to that were concrete were 100 years in the future. Um, uh, The only things that could point to were imminent were completely generalized and and non-specific to Massachusetts. That's number one. Number two, um, the Massachusetts opinion um, uh, uh, argued that the Clean Air Act created a a uh, procedural right of the sort that um, we see under, say, like NEPA, that lim- virtually eliminates the 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 um, uh, requirements for causation or redressability, and that was a key part of the analysis in in Ma- the Massachusetts versus EPA decision, relying on the language to that effect in Lujan. I think that's a misreading of the Clean Air Act, um, and uh, where because I don't think the Clean Air Act provision, Clean Air provision is not a procedural right provision; it's a jurisdictional provision. If it's, a procedural, if it's a procedural right provision, then Lujan was wrong. So I think under Lujan, Massachusetts wouldn't have had standing on that basis. And then in terms of Texas, Texas' claim very cleverly, at least their claim, their APA claim, for which I think there was standing. I'm not sure there was standing on the faithful execution claim, but I'm not sure the court needed to reach that. Was a purely procedural claim, right? Texas's claim was this didn't go through notice and comment. Our procedural right was violated, so they didn't have to show causation. They didn't have to show redressability, and they would have to spend money. And the argument that that's self-inflicted is 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 kind of uh, I, is is made up and outside of our standing law. So, for example, the holding of Lujan under the the plural under the um, uh, concurrence by Justice Kennedy joined by the suitor in Luhan was Joyce Kelly and Amy Skillbred would have had standing if they'd only done what? Spent their money to put themselves in harm's way, right? Bought the plane tickets. Well, if that's what would have given them standing in Luhan then you can't say, Texas, you don't have standing because you made a choice that made yourself vulnerable to having to pay for these driver's licenses. I think on top of that, and this is the point that 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 was made in the the brief that Ernie Young did that I joined, um, is that Texas was clearly engaged and was a, a, a sovereign function of the state in terms of issuing driver's licenses and, and independently deciding the criteria upon which it was doing so. It didn't invent those criteria for the purpose of generating standing. It, it, it had adopted, decided for those criteria on some independent basis um, uh, that it thought was worthwhile that so happened to make it vulnerable. And interestingly enough, one of the arguments at least that might have influenced Texas's fear of litigation had it had a different policy on that. So, so I think that's consistent there. Um, one thing, just to bring it back to the business topic, I think Chief Justice Roberts has been, you know, the things that caused him to disappoint conservatives in the NFIB case, to disappoint conservatives in the King versus Burwell case, are some of the same instincts that lead him to be quote unquote pro-business in a lot of other cases, which is he doesn't like disruption, he, if he can avoid it, um, he doesn't like cases that dramatically alter the status quo and that that unduly unnecessarily uh, uh, re, uh, Alter precedent there's a stability reinforcing aspect of that that at least parts of the business community like right We may not have, this may not have been the law we would have picked to begin with But now that you've been doing this let's keep this constant. He also is hostile to creative new ways of getting into court um, Maybe especially if it's done by plaintiffs lawyers uh, as opposed to states but but clearly that's overall his instinct and that in certain contexts is something that business likes although there are plenty of other areas where I think um, uh, that have nothing to do with business where he's he's just as willing to embrace that uh, that approach and I think I think at least he's had some influence on his colleagues in that respect and and so you can see that in in a broader uh, set of doctrines
0: well, that was a fruitful question so thank you um, we now are going to be uh, breaking for those refreshments. They will be upstairs in the Cato Winter Garden, which is right by uh, the Cato front door. Uh, you will find bathrooms along the corridor on this floor to the, uh, just past the elevators and, and down to the right. Um, and um, see you up there. And please join me in thanking our speaker and commenter.